We are going live. Three, two. Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Today, though we are missing our good, good friend Matt Till, he is still lost in the suburban sprawl of Chicago, Illinois. We are with Michael, our resident ephesiologist. I am Andrew Johnson, associate pastor at Neartown Church here in Houston, Texas. And we have a great guest today. His name is John Moorhead. John is the director of Multi-Faith Matters. He's the co-editor and contributing author of A Charitable Orthopathy, or Orthopathy, I already botched it, uh, Christian Perspectives <laughs> on Emotions and Multi-Faith Engagement. John has also provided expertise to the Lausanne Committee for World Evangelization Issue Group on the church and the new spiritualities. He has been involved for many years in multi-faith relationships and conversations in the context of Islam, Mormonism, paganism, and atheism. My goodness, John, that sounds amazing. Uh, <laughs> can you please tell us more that makes you seem like a human and not just an ivory tower exister? Yeah. Hey, but wait, we have to acknowledge that John is famous for using big words that throw podcast hosts. It's not his that, fault. That's in the title. Yeah. I should be able to read. And we even rehearsed it beforehand, but that's all right. Exactly. I have no excuse. Uh, so, John, please tell us some more about yourself. Give us some color to all sure, of those big some words. Sure, some color. Um, well, uh, I, obviously, I'm on a journey like everybody else. Uh, years ago, I was, uh, as a young evangelical, I was involved in the evangelical counter-cult apologetics community. I thought the best way to understand people in so-called cults or new religions was to tell them how their doctrine was unbiblical and they were heretical and welcome to Jesus. Mm. And uh, I, I did some reading in missiology and the history of Christian missions and sociology of religion and these kinds of things. And it just dawned on me that the way in which uh, American Christians, particularly evangelicals, were relating to people in other religions like the new religious movements in America was very different than a missionary would do overseas who would seek to understand the culture, develop relationships, embed themselves, love and serve others as they lived out and proclaimed the gospel. And so I eventually moved out of that and continued my journey. Uh, and I got involved in what I call multi-faith engagement or religious diplomacy. And basically what that is, is uh, developing relationships with people, having conversations about not only commonality, but deep differences. And through those relationships and conversations, we come to a place where even though we may not be able to resolve those differences because there are core convictions that differ with others, we can hold those things in a peaceful tension and work together uh, for the common good. And uh, so that's what my research and effort has been involved in uh, for a number of years. Just by way of my education, I have a, a degree from seminary in intercultural studies, and I continue my interest in, in various aspects of culture and uh, how theology and religion and spirituality plays out in culture. And all of that lends itself to our conversation today. That's yeah, fantastic. I've always appreciated yeah, John and I met uh, years ago, I think initially at a conference in Bi at Biola that you all were doing. I can't remember the organization now, um, yeah, but something that you were heading up back then. It might have been, always, uh, it might have been Evangelical Ministries to New Religions. I wonder if I think that's what it was. Phase. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. And I remember always uh, having an affinity for what you were doing in terms of really thinking missiologically. Uh, about engaging with others and understanding culture and and so on and so we've we've had fun over the years trying to figure out what that looks like and and uh, hopefully we've put forth a few efforts that are helping people but uh, appreciate so much what you're doing John and now with your multi-faith uh, initiative I, I think it's a, a great way to not just engage with other people, but particularly in our day and age when we're so divided uh, to, to be a, a model for how we can have constructive uh, conversations with people who believe very differently than we do. Well, I've appreciated working with you over the years. You and I, like we do go back, you and I worked on a conference together when you were at Trinity yep. on New Religions. You and I uh, traded off editing responsibilities for Sacred Tribes Journal. Uh, so it, it's a continuing pleasure to work with you over the years, Michael. Yeah, Andrew, we'll figure it out. <laughs> I, say, right. I already have. 
I have a leg up on Michael just because of all of my excitement for a Spider-Man and things that are both wonderful. <laughs> uh, they may not be real, but they are glorious. So, um, so it's fun. But anyway, uh, I well, that's was right. So starting- we, well, our 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 uh, the audience needs to understand that on your bookshelf are all these Spider-Man, Indiana Pacer paraphernalia. And then on the back of yep. uh, on John's bookcase back there, where you guys have uh, the, this affinity, is all kinds of interesting uh, effigies of various <laughs> things. John, you're going to have to tell us about what that is. Well, in in the background, for those who want to capture it still later and blow it up uh, for more exploration, uh, you'll find my library, which uh, has religious studies, multi faith engagement, peacemaking. Uh, neuroscience, as well as books on uh, pop culture and religion as it relates to film, television, science fiction, fantasy. So um, those are are my passions. And you'll find uh, some of my own personal trophies. There's no Spider-Man back there. But uh, I would argue that King Kong is a little bit better on the pop culture spectrum than (laughs) Spider-Man. This is another podcast. You know what? It's a podcast. It's a podcast that we should do around uh, Halloween, because that is uh, one of your favorite times of the year, John, as I remember. It is. It is indeed. That's fascinating. Well, we're not. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll have him back in regards to all things All Saints Day, but we are not going uh, there today um, because uh, what we would love to um actually spend a little bit of time with today is on something that John is familiar with. He is well-read and researched on, and perhaps you, the listener, have uh, heard about it, heard a lot about it, or this is your first exposure to it, but we wanted to talk about QAnon today. Um, Specifically, for me, as I'm seeing it, uh, I like to talk about it as uh, Q or QAnon versus the way versus what Jesus has actually said, because um, from where I stand and my research uh, at this point, it seems like they are at odds. So, uh, John, since you are well-read on this, could you give our listeners a good understanding, at least a cursory understanding, of what QAnon is and what it purports to do? Yeah, I'll, I'll try and summarize that as best I know it's it's complex it is it's complex it's convoluted um QAnon uh is a combination of two things Q uh refers to uh, an individual that or, or supposedly an individual it might even be a, a small group of individuals who started posting conspiracy theory ideas on uh, various internet forums uh, like 4chan I, I don't go there, so I don't have a whole lot of familiarity with the specifics of how that plays out. This individual claims to be uh, working in high levels of the government and have access to classified information. And uh, even though a lot of this material that these claims don't don't pan out, um, claims came, for example, that Hillary Clinton was close to being arrested years ago, and that didn't happen. Um, Even though it's been falsified in a sense, a lot of the stuff doesn't pan out. So there's Q, the individual, and then there's anonymous, QAnon. Uh, we don't really know who this individual is or whether, again, it's a group of individuals who are making these claims. And a lot of these claims have been scooped up by a, a broad number of sources in pop culture. You'll find it in, in politics. Even President Trump himself has retweeted and repeated uh, QAnon conspiracy claims. Um, if you look at photos from some of his rallies, you'll see uh, Trump supporters wearing QAnon T-shirts and hoping up, holding up signs saying "I am Q." So there's this identification with QAnon and, and the ideas of what's going on. And and Trump is at the center of this, not only because he's the president of the United States promoting some of these ideas, but the claim from Q is whoever this person is is that Trump is uh, at the center of a secret battle to fight against uh, the the uh, the secret forces in government who basically are on the far left, and they may even be a part of a satanic pedophile sex abuse ring, um, mm-hmm. believe it or not. And so uh, you'll find that uh, in the political realm and evangelicals, a lot of uh, our tribe have scooped these ideas up. And then it gets combined with things like our eschatology, end times prophecy, one world government. 
And so you'll find uh, a lot of times in the realm of politics and religion, unfortunately, evangelicals are influenced by the QAnon conspiracy theories that are found all over the Internet. Okay. Well, I can remember. So, yeah, Michael. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, I remember early on uh, seeing things beginning to appear from the, this Q source. And of course, two things came to mind immediately. One is from a biblical theological uh, perspective. When you think of Q, you think of Quella and source, that source of uh, information that, that was utilized by, the, by Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke for the writing of their their gospels or at least Matthew and Luke. Um, and, uh, and then the other one is from Star Trek, right? You have the Q, Q collective. And, uh, so your mind begins to wonder about uh, some of these things, but, but, um, as far as we know, as you were saying that this is, seems to be an individual or a group of individuals. Is there any more detail that we know about, uh, the, the person or the people, behind us? Not that I know of. In the last few days, I've seen some folks uh, strongly opposed to QAnon post uh, repeat some articles that they found recently online where they are making the claim that a certain individual or at least his, uh, his media, I don't recall his name, his media channel is responsible for posting Q. In fact, the, the headline was, now we know who Q is. And I read through the article. The article didn't claim that this was Q. And the response of the person posting on Facebook was, well, if he's editing the, the source where Q material is coming from, then he's ultimately responsible. Ah, um, I can see how you're trying to make that argument, but it's still not evidence that this individual is Q. So according to the best information that I've seen most recently, we still don't know who this person is. And that's a part of the problem. If you're making uh, claims, particularly grandiose political claims about conspiracies, we need to know who it is, what their background is, what their credentials are as a part of verifying and vetting the information. Yeah. And there have so, been some claims, right? Andrew, you probably remember this. Um, some claims to this. I think you mentioned earlier, John, this being a, a high level uh, person in in the government currently. Um, but, John, what I hear you saying is that we I mean, the fact is we really don't know. Right. And, and, that, and that's, that, one of the, that's one of the challenges of the, of the Internet age is in the past, uh, we turned to certain people who had certain levels of authority, background and expertise. Um, if someone was making a claim about science, we expected them to have the relevant education and experience to make public claims and so on. Nowadays, we have uh, the democratization of information. There's your your academic phrase for the day. Anybody who has access to the internet and access to social media or a blog or even a podcast can make any claim they want. And in certain audience segments, it is considered just as reliable and trustworthy as somebody with a PhD or other expertise in another area. So when you add the internet and those dynamics to QAnon and conspiracy theories, it's, it's a very troubling mix. Okay, so I think we're going down the road a bit farther than we want to go, only because I want to take one step back. John, you mentioned that Q and all of his their um, initial things were happening on 4chan. Um, and some of the claims would be your, and I know it sounds funny to say, but it sounds like your run-of-the-mill conspiracy theories. It's the it's the crazy things that people like to claim and say, oh man, you know, what if this is true? But there doesn't really seem to be a lot of basis in fact. So what has happened to move it from 4chan and then I think to 8chan and then to, because they got kicked off there, and then to 8chan and then they're on something else now. Um, they're not even on Reddit or not allowed on Reddit anymore. So what has moved it from uh, fringe to pop culture? Well, in a sense, it inhabits both realms. It's got legs in both. Um, it depends upon who you're talking to as to whether or not to consider fringe or, or mainstream. Um, I think it, it has traveled because it's been so controversial. And so it was eventually kicked out of 4chan, moves to 8chan, and problems developed there. I think uh, recently 
uh, even QAnon was labeled by maybe, I don't know if it's Homeland Security or some uh, government agency labeled it uh, uh, some kind of uh, having terrorist affiliations, simply because the ideas and the information are feeding uh, the potential for terrorist violence. Um, so it, it does have these problems. So on the one hand, it's fringe. And yet, on the other hand, when it migrates over into mainstream politics, when the president of the United States, uh, through, for example, Alex Jones, uh, was repeating uh, that notorious uh, conspiracy theory individual uh, through his podcast and television show that was extremely popular. Frontline recently did uh, a program on him, a documentary. He was picking up uh, QAnon and other conspiracy ideas, and then it went from there to the White House. And so, it, it again, it inhabits both the fringe and mainstream pop culture at the same time. As to why, uh, I think because it confirms uh, a, a lot, it provides meaning for people in very difficult times. We're in unprecedented times right now with the pandemic, uh, political polarization, social polarization, uh, race questions, riots in the streets. People are looking for some sense of stability, answers, and meaning. And when you can't find it in a divided media, you go to somebody who says, hey, Here's what's going on behind the scenes. I've got the inside scoop, and uh, if, if people grab onto it, and, and it works for them. Yeah, well, um, it, so, I mean, one of the things it seems like, John, and I'd love for you to speak more about this, but one of the things that seems to propel conspiracy theories is that there's just a hint of truth in them that and you were you were getting to this a moment ago just a hint of truth in them that somebody will latch onto and just move it and accelerate it into the mainstream yeah that that and let's uh, put it in its broader context of conspiracy theories uh, first of all um conspiracy theories are held to by almost everybody there is no i've seen a lot of the discussion conspiracy theory people are they're irrational, they're on the fringe, we can just dismiss them, this kind of thing. Um, I've done uh, some reading, talked to, uh, we did an interview uh, on a podcast with a political science professor who specializes in researching conspiracy theories. And it was a sobering conversation because he reminded us that most, if not all of us at one time or another are susceptible to conspiracy thinking. Um, some we find pal more palatable than others. And what does draw people is either an element of truth or the possibility of truth mm -hmm. um, that just speaks to people. I mean, uh, some of the more popular ones, uh, one that really bothers me is 9-11 truthers. Uh, the idea that rather than a, the result of terrorist attacks, the Twin Towers fell because of an internal conspiracy in the Bush administration to bring down the Twin Towers through explosive devices that brought the, the towers down, and that opened up the door for the war in Iraq and more military involvement in the Middle East. Um, and one of the things that, that fuels that is the way the towers fell. They didn't just topple over, as one might assume. Um, they basically imploded in kind of a pancake fashion. And people's intuition is, well, if that was really the result of a terrorist attack and an airplane explosion, that's not the way it would happen. However, if you move beyond the intuition and that, that grain of apparent truth and look at it a little more deeply, there have been scientific studies that have been done. Popular Mechanics Magazine did a whole issue where they scientifically tested it. And if you look at the way the jet fuel impacted and blew off the insulation on the steel beams, the temperatures, the flame because of the fuel and so on. Scientifically, we can demonstrate that that was the way the tower should have fallen through that kind of attack. But once you get to the point when somebody grabs onto a conspiracy theory, it's very difficult based on providing alternative evidence to turn the tide and be persuasive. But there is that element of, of truth or at least apparent truth that makes people grab onto that. Mm -hmm. And, and you combine that now with a a social media platform uh, that, that is so large, like we see with Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, and so on. It, it really is a recipe for a, a, an acceleration of these beliefs into uh, the society. Oh yeah, I mean it's it it has been amazing to me uh, when. Uh, QAnon first came on my radar, I didn't see a whole lot of evangelical response to it. In fact, what kind of made me decide to jump in 
was uh, I saw uh, Terry Mattingly, uh, who writes, he's a religion writer. He was uh, complaining about the fact that evangelicals were being tarred with the QAnon brush broadly, and there wasn't enough recognition of the few evangelical responses that there had been. I thought, that's, that's a great point. We need to get more. Well, now, just over a few months, you've seen a dramatic increase in the number of responses to it. And I think that's because people are recognizing now how significant QAnon is in penetrating uh, churches and penetrating mm. politics in helping us make our decisions related to these things, to spiritual matters. Um, and social media and the Internet have played a part of that. I wish my what idea you could, could impact culture as well as QAnon does. <laughs> well, I would say yes. <laughs> um <laughs> Such that your ideas take root before anybody realizes that they've taken root. That's right, um, and 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 that's kind of the thing I would I would want us to talk about. What about what we are seeing uh, in QAnon? Uh, why is it that we are seeing? Well, first of all, this is on an assumption that we are seeing a great blossoming or a blooming of QAnon ideas within the evangelical camp that Christians uh, who are more conservatively Republican-minded have been found to be repeating and purporting Q theories left and right. What is it about conservative evangelical Christians that makes us ripe soil for these Q theories? Yeah, that's where I hope you guys can throw some of your ideas into the mix. I don't think it's just conspiracy theories that are fueling this current evangelical moment. I think it's a mix of things. But I do think conspiracy theories are an important part of it. Another one is Christian nationalism. Mm. And I think those two come together. This idea that this is a Judeo-Christian nation, we were founded as such, we need to continue to be that. In fact, a Pew survey they did that showed that most evangelicals believe unless you are a Christian, you're not, you don't meet their definition of being a true American. So again, mm -hmm. it goes back to this Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism has been tied as a narrative to higher uh, incidents in evangelicalism of anti-immigrant stances, anti-Muslim. Uh, even uh, there were a couple of recent studies where those evangelicals who are opposed to wearing masks in re uh, response to the pandemic because of political and religious freedom ideas, it's more closely connected to Christian nationalist ideas than it is to simply evangelical faith uh, convictions. So I think there are a number of factors that are at play, but I think Christian nationalism then creates an environment where we're open to looking to elements that can confirm and strengthen the Christian nationalist narrative. And so when you run across ideas that there's a secret battle going on in the highest levels of American government. And when Satanism gets pulled into the mix, because remember I said at the beginning that one of the claims of QAnon is that uh, far left Democrats are working uh, as satanic pedophiles to kidnap and sexually molest children as a part of this satanic group. That, that's a repeat of ideas from the 1980s with the satanic panics. Mm -hmm. And so they're tapping into uh, boogeymen, and ideas and fears that evangelicals hold on to. And when all that comes to, together, you've got a mix that just makes it very attractive for a lot of evangelicals. Hmm. It makes wow. it really sad for me, um, listening to some of the things you're saying, John, because, you know, evangelical Christians, on a good day, <laughs> claim their faith and their hope for life both now and the hereafter for everyone is Jesus Christ. And yet it seems that there is this, but there's this other secret that you don't know about and we want you to really believe in it. And if you really, really want change in this world, then you've got to start listening because, you know, just like you guys were talking about the social media platforms and how Facebook, Twitter, somewhat Instagram, but it's more of the Facebook and Twitter, I think for QAnon type stuff, it's people posting and reposting and sharing. And it's like, wow, this is scary if true. Um, you know, I'm not saying it's true, but 
And so the ideas of QAnon are being shared and reshared by Christians. And it's almost becoming this other thing that like, if you really do believe uh, in Jesus, then you better get behind these other ideas so that we can really stop evil from happening in the world. Um, uh, Dr. John uh, Del Huse, uh, when I was at Phoenix Seminary, he had a great phrase. Um, the definition of heresy is Jesus and. It, it's whatever you're putting after Jesus that is necessary for salvation. That seems like heresy. And it seems like some of these Q thoughts are very heretical. Because it's like, yeah, Jesus is, but what he needs is also for you to believe these things so that you can take action. Along those lines of kind of not just heresy, but something coming forward as more than Jesus. Michael might add some thoughts. I was trying to solicit Michael's thoughts. I didn't know I was muted. My apologies there. Okay. Well, you know what? Then I'll back off. Both of you jump in. Yeah, you know, well, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, while you were talking, Andrew, my, my mind was going back to the, the early 1900s and the prophetic movement um, and how even beginning back then, people began to think about prophecy and the fulfillment of prophecy. And, um, you know, you go to the, the formation of the nation of Israel um after the the second world war and how all of these kinds of things begin to feed people's fascination with what's going to happen at the end times and uh you combine that then with this idea especially for a lot of evangelicals this idea that you know there is going to be opposition to who we are and anything that might give a hint to being that type of opposition, whether it be, you know, government regulations on wearing masks uh, or holding worship services, that just feeds into, you know, these these ideas, um, uh, really eschatological ideas. And John, you made reference to this earlier. That, uh, that some of this could be attributed to um, a evangelical perhaps misunderstanding of eschatology. Yeah, I, I certainly think eschatology is a part of that mix. Uh, I, I know, Michael, you're doing some research for another book on Revelation. I've only been able to be in one of those meetings, but it, it caused me to go back and take another look at Revelation, revisit the issue of eschatology in general. And, and I do think that's a huge part. I, I remember when QAnon really came on my radar as it's impacting the evangelical community on Facebook, I saw a Christian friend of mine who posted a photo of somebody who was holding up a big banner out at a public rally. And it, was, it didn't mention QAnon, but it was picking up and recirculating an idea that they then committed, uh, connected to one world government. And the concern was uh, about uh, don't, don't get vaccinated because that's going to be the way in which uh, you know, they're going to implant a chip in you and that's connected to the idea of the mark of the beast and all of this. So certain end times views and scenarios are then connected to conspiracy theories, current events, and that just plays again into that whole big mix and makes these things very attractive. I, I just wish evangelicals had the ability to kind of pause, catch their breath, take a step back and and if nothing else, rethink their eschatology. I mean, I think that would mm. that would provide a huge helpful corrective. I feel that as we are talking, um, I mean, as I made the joke earlier that, uh, John, you live in an ivory tower, and I know that's not true. Um, some of this conversation can sound very intellectual. It's, it's, uh, it's academic. We're just going to talk about Q uh, like it's in a Petri dish. We're going to kind of poke at it. But the truth of the matter is, I believe there's a lot of people who are friends, maybe even family members of ours. And you as a listener might be able to pick up now, not realizing what Q is, but then seeing or hearing some things from people that you love that, oh, so that's connected to Q or Q is trying to connect it into their world and, and get you. I, I do think it's important. How can we even talk about this or help people see the 
danger of this without having to do this very serious face, we need to have an intervention. Like, how can we talk about this in a healthy manner that's helping people see what you are thinking, believing, and acting upon is dangerous? Mm. You know, that's so challenging in our climate now when everything is so volatile. Um, you say one thing against somebody else and it's taken so personally. So, John, I mean, you, you th- this is the, the stream that you swim in, uh, isn't it? Uh, these multi-faith, multi-view uh, kind of uh, conversations. So I'd love to hear what, what, what is your advice to us? about how we engage in conversations with people that just disagree or, or are set in a particular way of thinking? Yeah, um, I appreciate the question. Um, in terms of the ivory tower, in my ministry, I always try and uh, keep one foot in the academic world to say, what is the best data? What's the best information? But then also keep another foot in the popular realm. How do we take that information and then package it in, in ways that it impacts the lives of people who are, who are living in situations in which we want to have an influence. And I think that's what we're talking about here. One of the concerns I've had in watching some of the responses to, whether it's QAnon or anybody who's involved in a conspiracy theory, is this very strong othering, if you will. I mean, I've mm-hmm. seen articles uh, where QAnon is labeled as a, it's a cult. And people who hold these ideas are irrational and they're cultists. And, and then I've seen commentary by well-meaning evangelicals who many times may be progressive in their orientation and are all about that they will post about the need to welcome the immigrant, these kind of things. But we all have our outgroup, those people that we don't like that make us uncomfortable. And for a lot of people, it's in this current political moment, it's conspiracy theory adherence. And so the, the, the argument will be, well, we just need to give them a reality check. Uh, we just need to give them the facts. We need to shut that down is some of the things I've heard. In my experience in other contexts, whether it's trying to have a conversation with somebody where we're, we're deeply divided over religion or politics, simply getting in somebody's face and giving them saying, you're wrong, here are the facts, your worldview is false, all that does is that it has what's called a backfire effect in psychology. It can actually end up confirming and strengthening somebody's commitments to what you don't agree with. And so I think we need to, to stop and be empathetic, uh, to exercise humility, to say, you know what, there's a possibility that some of what they believe uh, may be correct. Let, let me give them a hearing. Listen to what their concerns are, why they find this so meaningful and important. And then after we have a chance to reflect, you could say, yeah, I hear that. I hear what you're saying. I share your concern. Let's have a conversation together and maybe think through this together and maybe we can understand each other. And through that process of mutual understanding, rather than let me correct you about your false ideas, then I think you can begin to make headway. I just think, again, we need to emphasize this empathetic kind of approach rather than beating people over the head. I remember Back when we had the uh, the riot or the the rally at Charlottesville, I think it was a few years ago, where you had white supremacists who drove through the crowd and there was a fatality. The response on many leftists in my and progressives in my Facebook feed was, "You know what I do with Nazis? The best way to take care of a Nazi is punch a Nazi in the face." And I think there were even videos of uh, people going up and and punching alt right people in the face at rallies, and people on the left are like, "Yeah, that's the way to do it." Um, I've seen some great uh, discussions by former neo-Nazis, and they said it wasn't a, a confrontational, violent approach that got them to change their way of thinking. It was an unexpected word and act of kindness from somebody when they didn't deserve it that created the emotional and intellectual space for them to rethink their commitment to their ideology. And I think all of that applies to conspiracy thinking. Okay, so then what about if if somebody is right now listening and they're going to play the tape back or they're going to do the reading and they're like, okay, so one of the big things about Q is that there are high-level democratic satanic pedophilia sex rings and I'm supposed to go to somebody that actually thinks that's happening in a very real way and be empathetic. How do I cross that in what might be a logical Rubicon. 
for some people. How can you seek out an empathetic conversation when at least what you are hearing, the base level of some of the concerns are so outlandish? Well, I think we can uh, have some initial level of of sympathy with that concern. I mean, uh, hopefully all of us are concerned about pedophilia. Uh, We want to make sure that uh, a child, there you go, uh, you know, that human trafficking is not taking place. Um, So we're concerned about that. Uh, The whole whole Satanist angle is another thing because uh, we have a long history of stereotyping and misrepresenting what Satanism is all about. So maybe we can bracket that to the side for a moment. But we can come alongside people and say, look, I share your concern for the abuse of children, of, of human and sex trafficking. And I want to work with you to oppose that. But at the same time, let's rethink the extent to which that is happening and the ideas that are circulating about its connection to certain political parties. So again, you begin by drawing a connection and common ground in some areas and then move from there to areas of disagreement and exploration. Good. I I think that's very helpful. You know, we're we're, uh, less than 40 days now to this election. Um, uh, You know, what do we do? John, what 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 do you what are your thoughts here? Uh, because the, this you know QAnon isn't going away. Um, I would suspect uh, th- that we're going to see a ramping up of various conspiracy theories um, as we're moving ahead these next these next forty days or less than forty days. Um, for those who might hold to some of these theories. What would be your advice to them? And then for those of us that um, don't hold to those, how, how do you see us moving forward? I, I think my suggestion to those who hold to these conspiracy theories that's, that's assumed that they're a Trump supporter, I would simply ask uh, them to, to reassess their own faith, look at their heart, and what, what does my Christian faith, what does being a disciple of Christ in this cultural mm-hmm. moment, the 21st century in America, in a time of polarization, a time of vitriol, uh, how does my faith inform the best way of being a disciple and living that out? Is it necessarily some of the commitments that I have? Or is there perhaps another way forward? And, and that's going to be a very, self-criticism and, and self-critique is a very difficult process to take, but I think it's a a healthy one. And I think we as Christians ought to be doing that all the time. How can I be more Christ-like in this particular context? Uh, For those who uh, are not holding to these conspiracy theories and may have a great deal of anger and resentment uh, towards those who do, um, I would simply, you know, point them towards the the prior suggestions that I've given. I know it's difficult. I get frustrated too uh, when I have these conversations online. A, A friend of mine a ministry colleague said, you know, you're always so gracious when you talk to others on Facebook. And my response is, that's what happens after I pause. Mm. I get frustrated. I get angry too. But I know that it's that Facebook and other social media platforms are not the best forums in which to try and persuade and understand others. And so we really have to be proactive in stepping back holding our breath, not responding in the moment, you know, right? Social media is, I get something, we, we go back and forth and we're not really thinking and feeling it through. How can we do that more carefully with an eye towards not necessarily winning the argument, but winning the individual? How can I gain an ally through this conversation? So it's much I the think, same. I mean, the same idea of uh, the, the learning to be a disciple. Uh, I mean, it goes both ways, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I also want to, this is an unsolicited plug, I I really would encourage uh, folks who may hold the conspiracy theories who may be Trump supporters, pick up a copy of uh, your book, Michael. I think you do a great job of helping evangelicals rethink what what is the evangelical faith identity supposed to be at this time and rethinking and unpacking that. It's Mm -hmm. a great resource. I appreciate that. Appreciated you writing the forward for that book. Oh, it was a pleasure. Um, I would, I want to double back um and by the way the name of the book is when evangelicals sneeze so if you haven't listened to past episodes or read some of uh michael's stuff on ephesiology.com the name of the book is when evangelicals sneeze uh, available wherever you can find it um happy looking 
I'm kidding. Uh, go to even uh, ephesiology.com. Uh, you can order it there. You can go to amazon.com, get it there. Um, but John, I wanted to jump back to something that you said, um, and you said it quickly, but I think, I think we all need to hear this again and again. And if you're over the age of 35, I think you need to pause and realize this. John, is Facebook the best place to have substantial conversations with others? Is that the best place to go to really just have a heart-to-heart, eye-to-eye conversation where we see each other and where we hear each other and where it's all happiness? No, not at all. I mean, hopefully this won't come as a surprise to many listeners. All you have to do is look at the comment section on Facebook posts or go to YouTube and uh, look at the comments uh, on that. Many uh, social media platforms are struggling with how to deal with their comment section. Some have just made the decision to take them off completely because uh, when you remove uh, the personal identification where we can post anonymously or even when we have our name attached to it, if I'm not sitting down with you face to face, one human being to another, and it's just me with my keyboard, and it's this faceless, anonymous other person that I don't know and don't have any stake in, um, it just increases the, the likelihood that we're going to engage not in an empathetic, humble, truth-seeking conversation, but I just want to win the argument. I want to score my points. I want to show that this guy is not only wrong, he's probably an idiot in the process. And so it, it brings out the worst of human nature and human uh, interaction with each other. So we need to figure out ways to take these very important conversations and make them heartfelt conversations in more personalized forms. Social media is just making worse all of the, the tremendous polarization and struggles that we're facing these days. Stay away from comment sections. That is my encouragement to you as friends and listeners of this podcast. Stay away. And, and what I mean is it's twofold. Stay away from just trying to read all of them because even if you choose to not comment, you're still washing yourself over in angry vitriol. And, and beyond that, just what John said, it's not even just anonymous people. It's bots. There are thoughts that are populating comment fields and posts on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube that are not real people. They are bots that have been sent there to uh, double down on an idea or a crazy idea or an angry idea. And you're just sitting, taking it all in. So my encouragement is stay away from the comment sections. And then secondly, just ask yourself, do you need to be posting this? Do you need to be saying this? I would, I would severely limit your interaction on the online world. Um, I'm not saying beyond what is necessary because now let's just have an honest question. What's necessary online? Probably not much. But um, if you want to be online and you want to interact with folks, then just ask, is this actually beneficial? Is this, uh, I mean, the, all the questions we ask in regards to how we act normally, is this pure? Is this good? Is this honoring? Um, we want to reflect Christ truly and honestly, um, even online. Um, there's a, unfortunately, I really want to point everybody to a forthcoming book by Brett McCracken. Um, and uh, it's not out till February. So I don't even, it's not really helpful. I can't have you go read it, but it's about how we as Christians approach with wisdom. Uh, all of our um, online interactions and how we show up. Uh, it's called, I think it's like the wisdom pyramid. Um, but just what is wise for me to do as a believer? Um, Michael, John, some other thoughts in regards to our online presence as believers? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, it's interesting. It's very complex, isn't it? Because now we're, we're uh, in this age of COVID when our um, social interaction is somewhat limited in terms of face-to-face in some places, not every place. Um, and so, you know, at some level, uh, a Facebook or Twitter tries to take the place of those things. So I, th- I think your comments, both of you, are in terms of being measured in what we do in social media um, is, is uh, a wise course of action. 
At the same time, I think, you know, we have to think as we're thinking missiologically these days about how can we effectively engage culture? Um, We have to look at the different places where we might see a marketplace, if you will, of conversations. And certainly Facebook and uh, various other social medias are places where we see what those conversations are. And so from that perspective, I I think um, it's interesting, if not uh, instructive, for us to look and see what, what it is that people are talking about. And, uh, and really to think about how do we engage uh, in those kinds of conversations that will be constructive and not destructive. But yeah, that much of what, what uh, we see these days in social media t- tends toward that, that uh, destructive uh, behavior uh, that we're all either experiencing or at least witnessing. Um, I think too, you know, when, if we can't get away from social media, um, I, I think one of the habits that we've gotten into in th- this age of social media is uh, a real lack of attentive, attentiveness to what we're reading. We often will, and I'm as guilty as anyone, will just read things in a cursory way and not really think about them and then react to one or two sentences without uh, the paying attention to the, the whole context of what's being said. And so if we can't, if we find ourselves uh, in places where it's difficult to resist social media, please take the time and read uh, everything. I I mean, the whole context of what's being written so that you have a better understanding of, of what it is. If I can jump uh, in and just to share an anecdote um, because I think all of us have read headlines and you read the headline and maybe the first sentence and you think you have a grasp on it mm-hmm. and you go and you kind of either go angrily or happily and you haven't read the article. And yeah. um, I think it was last year, maybe two years ago, uh, a writer who I love, she wrote something and I was interacting with her on Twitter, but I had read her title in the first sentence. And I was so excited on the idea. I started talking about um, maybe the next time she should write on this aspect of it. And she said, she replied back and said, did you read the article? Because that is literally the whole point of the article. Mm-hmm. And I was so embarrassed because I hadn't read the article and with my tail tucked between my legs, I had to apologize to her and say, I'm done talking now. Yeah. Thank you. So, yeah, yeah, we've just gotten into this habit of responding. Um, And it's sad, I I think, because, you know, we often will come to and and this happens in life. It's not just social media, but it happens in life as well. Uh, We'll a first impression will create a lasting impression on someone. And it's so difficult to uh, to change those impressions, even though that might be uh, terribly misrepresentative of the person that you have the impression of. And we've all experienced that, those assumptions that we bring to other people. And it's really a discipline for us to be able to take a step back. And John, as you just so beautifully uh, talk about, be gracious with people. and uh, and really consider uh, wisely what it is that and how it is that we're going to engage with someone else. Yeah, I think these are important issues and conversations that people are wanting to have on social media. It's just the venue has yeah. so much to it that makes things worse. I would encourage those listeners who who are passionate about these issues, which is a good thing, to channel them in more efficient and effective ways. Uh, get in touch with organizations like the, ours, the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy. We can help people start in their neighborhoods, heart and mind conversations. Mm. There are other organizations. I think there's one called All Sides or it's either All Sides or Both Sides. And what they do is they they go into neighborhoods and they bring Republicans and Democrats together. And they've got a formula uh, much like ours where it helps people have personal, uh, productive conversations over their differences. That's the way to go about it, face-to-face, uh, understanding each other in, in proactive kinds of ways rather than simply being angry at each other over social media. Well, I don't think we solved the Q debate today. 
Um, but I hope that uh, if you as a listener have not engaged uh, or anything in the Q conversation, that's fine. But do read up on it. Um, friend of the pod, maybe someday we'll be on the pod, Ed Stetzer. I mean, he decided to step into this world and everybody started condemning him, calling him names, uh, being extremely hateful in a new way that I didn't think that they had. And so all the Q bots came after him. Um, so read up on it, see what's happening in the world of Q, just so that you can be informed that if there are, again, friends, loved ones who are going down this road, that you can see it for what it is and then just have that emotive, empathetic conversation uh, with friends uh, towards this. Uh, John, are there any kind of last parting thoughts that you have for our listeners in regards to the many things that we talked about today? Uh, I would just encourage uh, listeners to to be prepared. I think this is going to be a very difficult election cycle, regardless of who wins the election. I think there's the likelihood that uh, we may not know the results for quite some time afterward. Uh, I, I, again, no matter who wins, I think we're going to have half an angry population. And since we're already at the point of uh, not only protests, but at some places, uh, uh, violent riots. I can see that continuing. How can we as Christians not contribute to the violence, but instead be people of peace uh, as in, as our, our Lord Jesus Christ was? Amen. That's a good word. Well, John, thank you so much for being our guest today. Um, I feel that my I am significantly smarter now just being in your presence and listening to you. And I hope all of our listeners, yes, all of our listeners have also been fooled uh, by all of that and uh, they are joyously here with you Um, and Michael thank you so much for encouraging John to be on Uh, your friendship has been enriching I think for all of us here thank you for the invitation guys I really appreciate it Uh, John if people want to interact with you or um, catch up with what more that you are doing or stay current with what you are doing where can they find you Uh, They can go to the website for Multi-Faith Matters, and that's at multifaithmatters.org. And I do regular blog posting there, and uh, they can see what my brain is up to at that particular place. We've got podcasts and other things we do as well. Awesome. Well, we invite you, our listeners, to be a part of this growing ephesiology global community. Whether you're an academic, uh, a pastor, church planter, a leader, a mentor, or a spirit-filled Christ follower, Um, hopefully that's many of us, with a desire for God's mission in the world, we have a seat at the table for you. So we've got three easy ways you can be a part of the Physiology community. One, subscribe to the Physiology podcast and leave a five-star rating and review. And I would say 1A, tell somebody about this, share it with them, allow them into this world and say, this has been encouraging to me. Two, head over to physiology.com and sign up for free exclusive content delivered from us into your email. And three, join the ongoing conversation on our Facebook page by searching Ephesiology. And then when you go there, interact graciously and kindly as we have all talked about for this whole podcast. So for Michael, myself, and John, and Matt, thanks for doing Theology and Community with us today on the Ephesiology Podcast.